I wanted a piece of music by my friend Abdullah Ibrahim. Because when you listen to that piece of music, you listen to it and irrespective of whether you know Abdullah or not, it evokes in you a sense of beauty, it invokes in you a sense of compassion, and the identity of the composer, him or her, is, and he or her's political beliefs, it's a second line of inquiry, not a first line of inquiry. The first line of inquiry is certainly, is this a good piece of contemporary jazz music? Or is this a good piece of visual art? That's where you start. Everything else should be secondary. I'm your host, Horel Kasimi, artist, curator, director, and president of Sharjah Art Foundation, and you're listening to our podcast, Speaking of Art. In this episode, artist Gavin Yantis and curator Salah Hassan talk to us about the ideas animating Gavin's first ever retrospective, To Be Free. Gavin's art reflects on several political and aesthetic movements over the past 50 years, from struggles against apartheid in South Africa to various anti-colonial movements around the world and the legacies of slavery. In Salah's words, the exhibition, which is on in Sharjah right now, affirms the remarkable roles Gavin has played in furthering the discourse and representation of African and African diaspora art. That's a lot of ground to cover in one podcast, but helping us to do just that are today's guests. To introduce them briefly, Gavin Yantis is an artist, activist, curator, and educator with a five-decade practice. The themes he explores in his work, which extends across painting, sculpture, and printmaking, echo his long-standing commitment to human rights activism. Salah Hassan is a curator, editor, and the Distinguished Professor of Arts and Sciences in Africana Studies at Cornell University, as well as the founding director of the Africa Institute, our sister organization here in Sharjah. Hi, Gavin, and hi, Salah. Hello. (laughs) Hi there. Hi there. Welcome to Speaking of Art. We're thrilled to have you both on this episode. Gavin is joining us from Oxford and Salah is here with us in the studio. Gavin, can we begin by hearing a bit about your journey? We know you were born the year apartheid was implemented in South Africa and that you had to leave in 1970 as a political refugee. What were those early years in Cape Town like and how did this impact you both as a young person and as an art student? I was born, as you said, in the year that apartheid came into power. And I lived under it until I departed in 1970, and I was uh, 20 years old at the time. The important thing about my experience under apartheid is that it, it forced Black people to form communities and do things for themselves because the state was not responsible. The state did not do anything. There was no... Uh, organized state cultural activity for black people that was not a kind of a pro-apartheid activity. Anything that, that was for human rights was denied by the state. And so communities got together and actually did something. And I grew up in a community to, which was called District 6. It sits right in the heart of Cape Town, right next to the city center. And it was declared a white area uh, 800,000 families were moved out and the, the place was bulldozed down. And if you go down to Cape Town today, you'll see a huge vacant space right in the heart of the city that is still the remnants of what they did in 1970. So this community that they destroyed was an exceptional community, the District 6 community, where institutions such as mosques and institutions such as churches got together 
schools, education groups got together and we created our own cultural activity, our own cultural program. One of the most important things for me was they created a children's art center. And I went to that center from the age of three. It literally was around the corner from my house on the same block. I could walk there in the mornings, go to the kindergarten. And in the afternoon, the kindergarten would take me to the art center. So I have been engaged with art since I was three years old. That's a long time for anybody to be engaged in art. And I, I, I enjoyed that. But it taught me something. It taught me that you resolve your problems by being creative. And being in the arts was one of the most creative fields you can be in. And it was a way of uh, developing self-expression. That self-expression and creativity was one way to address the state of your political inertia created by apartheid. And I think that was a key, key moment in my life, that, that recognition uh, of cultural activity having a route towards humanity that actually exposed the inhumanities of the apartheid system and the discrimination that it had, and that you could find solutions by being a creative human being. And my community encouraged that. So growing up under apartheid was an exceptional kind of Alice in Wonderland activity <laughs> that became even more uh, profiled and distinguished when I went to the University of Cape Town which was by the state's declaration, a white university. So I managed to get into the university in the Michaelis School of Fine Art, which is still there today, uh, as the only black student in the entire art school. Uh, that was in 1966. And I graduated from there finally um, in the 60s, Nine And then in 70, I went to uh, the Art Academy in Hamburg, the Hochschule für Bildende Künste in Hamburg. So my experience was that I learned to uh, basically find a route out of the apartheid restrictions using my creativity. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Gavin. So coming back to 1970, the year you left South Africa for Germany, we know that at this time you were really drawn to printmaking as a process and were also incorporating collage techniques with it. Your experimental screen print collages often addressed European colonization, paid homage to anti-colonial and anti-racist leaders, and captured the horrors of apartheid. An example of this is your famous series, A South African Coloring Book. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to printmaking during this period? Well, printmaking was what we could afford as black artists. We had so little money. Uh, art was in, wasn't even taught at, at many schools, primary schools or children's schools or high schools. But we were exposed to all kinds of creative medias. One of them was printmaking. And it was what we could afford. You could go out and buy or go to an interior decoration shop and buy an offcut of linoleum and using uh, the innards of, a, of an umbrella, <laughs> for example, attaching that to a length of wood, you could actually make a cutting tool and you could cut 
an image into linoleum. And then you could use black boot polish, mm. the things you'd put on your shoes and use that as your printing ink. That's brilliant. And if you could afford some some early, you know, piece of paper, I don't think A4 was even a, a standard size of paper at the time, or you could go to the, 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 the local newspaper printing works and get a roll of offcut, which was just at the end of a roll, which could no longer go through the machine. There was at least, I don't know, sometimes 50 meters of newsprint. And you could use that. So that was how we started. And a lot of artists in South Africa still today mm -hmm. have this route because they cannot afford to buy proper oil paints and proper canvas and have a studio and all of the other requirements to be a professional, even a semi-professional artist. So I sat in my mother's kitchen making uh, woodcuts on the kitchen table in the evening after dinner once everything had been cleared away and uh, printing them, learning to print with proper printer's ink and rubbing the prints down by hand with a wooden spoon and making one print per evening, coming back the next evening, making a second print and slowly building up an edition. And that's how I began. And then when I went to the Hochschule, there was an opportunity to use photographic screen printing. And people often forget this, that it was Coca-Cola who introduced screen printing as a new technology. They used it to print labels on Coca-Cola bottles. So there was this technology that artists then decided to take and use because you could transfer an image from one media into another via screen print. And, and today it's, I suppose, digital technology. So whenever there's a new bit of image technology, artists grab it and run with it and use it. And that's what I did. And when I went to Germany, to the art academy there, they had a full facility uh, to do this. And then later I met some really, truly professional printers called Florian Boer and Peter Gutscher, who taught me everything I knew about printing. And that was amazing because their the quality of what they were delivering as printers was so extraordinary that one day when I went to London to Kelpro Studios in London, who were printing for Marlboro Graphics and printing all those famous prints for the pop artists in London, they looked at my work and they said, but this isn't screen printing. It's so fine. It's so delicate. You have to be using offset light. I said, no, no, this is screen printing. And I remember walking out of the studio and saying, my God, I'm doing something that this top class print house, which is printing pop artist work, they didn't know how to do this. They were completely baffled that you could print such fine quality prints with a screen. What uh, was very difficult at that time with this, how small a dot you could actually print uh, from a screen. And I, my, my printers in, in, in Hamburg, they had developed a method, which I suppose must have been most people today use, but at the time was quite unique. And I was actually, I had access to this wonderful technology. Can you tell us a bit more about a South African coloring book? Well, when I arrived at the Hochschule in Hamburg, I, I realized that my German student colleagues who were very much involved uh, in the inhumanities of the Vietnam War uh, were completely, not completely, but somewhat oblivious of the realities of apartheid. So I decided one day to, I'll make something that would inform them uh, in the simplest possible way. Uh, about the realities of South Africa. And so I made this set of 11 prints in a folder 
which was actually designed as a multiple because at the time multiples became popular and people were making multiples and making book forms of art. So the coloring book, that's why it's called a book, is actually to be presented as a book, not as a series of frame prints on the wall. Um, and I made this series and it took me an incredible amount of time. I think the first two years of my four years in Hamburg, I spent just researching and getting the facts together, going to UNESCO in Paris, using the UNESCO archives, traveling to East Berlin to use the ANC archives, traveling to the anti-apartheid movement in London and using their archives, getting into Stern magazine's photo archives and stealing images out of their photo archives. I should admit that today. <laughs> I set up a camera with a roll of black and white film on it in front of my television. And every time there was a documentary, I photographed the images off the television. I learned to do that and then used those images. Some of the images I then used in the making of my prints. Uh, and I had a, an exceptional um, teacher who was, um, or friend, who was uh, a photographer, who made his own chemicals, made his own fixative, uh, etc., uh, who taught me about making high-resolution um, um, images for screen printing. So I could develop this book, and the thing that I wanted mostly to do with the book was to push the limits of what was called an edition at the time. You made an edition, there were rules about what made a good quality print. For example, you always had to sign the print in the bottom right-hand corner, you had to put the edition number in the left-hand corner at the bottom. The print had to be on one sheet of paper. The print, uh, in fact, some people insisted that it had to be in black and white only. <laughs> there were all sorts of ridiculous restrictions on prints. And we took the rule book of the printmaking associations and just literally broke every rule, one rule at a time. So you started to make collage, you started to make a print on two or three sheets of paper, you sign this, sign the print in print, somewhere in the print, the signature is hidden, the edition number is hidden, all sorts of little things like that. And that's how this coloring book came into existence. And it was recognized as something quite exceptional, not just for the information, but it it was a, a kind of a fun thing because every every sheet was had a question in it for the for the viewer you had to uh take this information and see what you could do with it did you understand it did it did it advance your knowledge of the apartheid state and did it advance your knowledge of the state of the inhumanity being um brought down on the heads of black people in south africa thank you gavin it's interesting to hear about this work not just the process but especially as we continue to live with the scars of such racial injustices the whole premise behind it. Salah, I want to bring you in here. You've said before that Gavin's art embodies a quest for emancipation with a freedom not bound by the Eurocentric gaze or expectations of black creativity. This brings us back to the title, To Be Free. Can you tell us a little bit more about the framing of this show? Well, thank you so much, Hor. What is really that drove me as an art historian into curating is really to address the thing that I observed as an Africanist uh, within art, a typical Western art historical uh, departments where my field has always been on the margin. 
So I felt what's missing really is the, first of all, is the very material, you know, for really creating an artistry discourse and that you can only do through exhibitions. So I felt, and if you uh, would notice the way that I, I really pursued uh, my career in curating is that I focused on schools and artists and movements because I felt that is uh, very important to do. Gavin Yancey's actually fit a profile of artists that I felt is very important to really focus on because their art fit that kind of story is that they have the depths, but they also uh, defy all the expectations of what an African artist should be or an Western artist. It's that they do the work, but they have the very means and theoretical uh, savvy to actually produce the very, the very discourse about the work. So to get to the title itself, I felt Gavin's career embody multiple uh, uh, aspects as an activist, as an, an artist, as an art historian, as a writer, as a curator. All of those together works in the dialogic imagination is that they work really interconnected in a way that they become almost like a novel in which multiple genres are in there. It could be poetry, it could be uh, riddles, it could be proverbs and everything uh, in there. So. For me, the, const the, the, the title came from when I think about many African artists, they face, especially the contemporary and the modern, within a world that, world that marginalized them, which is two challenges. One is the burden of representation, that there was a wide gaze that expected them to produce in a certain way, an expectation that their art must speak to a specific cultural niche. Uh, so that is one thing that I felt you know, uh, Gavin really defied. Con there is another, you know, has always been parallel to the burden of representation, is the idea of freedom. If you look at Gavin's life, in the early part of his, his career, he was an activist, but he's also an artist. He chose the printmaking, the idea of the mechanical production, let's say, was, as uh, Walter Benjamin talked about, is that that allowed him to to work on this and, and, and the medium allowed him to do the artwork through multiple techniques, but it also reaches a wider audience. So it satisfied that, which is actually a quest for freedom in the context of apartheid. How do you really get the message out? Uh, and then he moved, of course, to painting. It was figurative and it was within his thinking at the time of trying to address issues that are related to his own history, but appeal to the larger humanity the sky charts. That's a series that we feature in the first part of the exhibit itself. In that, there was a, a dialogue. If you see, there was a mask and there was a coat. And apart from Mademoiselle d'Avignon of Picasso, what concerned me here is that dialogue between Western modernism and African art, and in which it, it's almost read as a critique, but it was also connectivity. So that is, for me, the breakthrough, the entering into a dialogue with modernism. And then, there, of course, comes uh, a later period, which is after uh, several, you know, multiple interventions as a curator and as a, a teacher uh, in Chelsea or in England, as also somebody who's really an arbiter and a maker within the cultural arena who was behind many initiatives. Among them is the INEVA, uh, which is the International Institute of Visual Art, which was a major, major initiative in England that really changed the terrain of art history and art. So that is one area in which also the quest is for freedom. And then the last, which is his movement from the figurative to the non-figurative, which is where he really 
explore the idea is that the artist or the African artist specifically doesn't have to conform to certain things. So the title, To Be Free, came from a major uh, uh, song to Nina Simone, which was, he was asked once in a famous interview, uh, what is freedom means to you? So she asked it, it after a pause that it meant uh, no fear. And in that sense, I felt that that title is really an embodiment of the career of, of, of Gavin Yantis. I thought these connections between the, co the context of art history and also the career of Gavin Yantis as, a, as somebody who's owned this kind of a dialogic imagination in which all of these elements work together is the, the perfect title. Enjoying this episode? Why not listen to our sister series, Buying Your Bites, where we hear from some of the most prominent artists practicing today. For more information on all exhibitions and events at Charger Art Foundation, please visit our website or follow us on Instagram at Charger Art. You're listening to Speaking of Art. Welcome back to Speaking of Art, the official podcast of Charger Art Foundation. We're in conversation with Gavin Yantis and Salah Hassan. To continue with your journey, Gavin, in 1982, you moved from Germany to England and with it from printmaking to painting. Yet the theme of historical trauma persists. In the series Corabra, for example, that you painted in the mid-80s, you explore the suffering caused by the transatlantic slave trade. Can you talk about why you made this series? When I moved uh, from Germany, West Germany at the time to in into England, um, I had already started painting in, in Hamburg and I had my first exhibition of paintings. I think it was 1980, uh, in London because I had a gallerist in London and he was, uh, wanting me to be closer to, to him in the, in the UK. I moved, um, from Germany to, to live in, um, in Wiltshire in the countryside, uh, very close to where I'm living now. Um, and um, I was very interested at the time in the history of the slave trade because while I was in Hamburg, I met uh, Walter Rodney who wrote uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, phenomenal little book about uh, an assessment of the European slave trade and its effect on Africa and I suppose also on the Americas. Uh, and having opportunity to sit a couple of sit day after day talking to him about his book, the research he had undertaken, and uh, this theme grew in my head, and I kind of wanted to do something about it, but I I, I didn't really find a hook for it. And it happened to me when I was uh, living in the West Country in in Wiltshire, and I went to Bristol. Uh, to the Arnolfini Gallery, and in the harbour of Bristol was um, a statue of a famous slave trader who was being honoured <laughs> in the city of Bristol. But there was not a single plaque even to mention that Bristol was a key port in the European slave trade. Neither was there one in London, neither was there one in Liverpool. None of these harbour cities, which are all slave ports, uh, had any acknowledgement of the UK's part in the slave trade. And then I got an invitation to do a residency in Coventry. And I said, for the residency, I wanted to tackle this issue of the slave trade. 
Um, so I went to Coventry and I took along seven or eight canvases, large canvases, and began painting this series called the Corabra series. And I wanted also, when I made this, to move away from this direct, um, almost uh, overstated um, political text that surrounded the slave trade. I wanted to move away from the, just the dissemination of the facts of 300 million people being transported across the, across the Atlantic over centuries um, and actually try and uh, create an image or a series of images that could give a sense of this. So I had to find some form of poetic imagery to do this because I did not want to have a, a, a list of how many people or anything like that in the, included in the work. I wanted the work as a body of seven or eight canvases to carry the message of what slavery itself meant in its human context. And, and therefore, not just African slavery to Europe, but all slavery at the time, there was also, there still is, in fact, an anti-slave uh, organization which functions in the UK up to today. Um, so I tackled this series of paintings and uh, worked on it for four months in Coventry. And then I went to see uh, the poet uh, Lyndon Quasey Johnson in London, in South London. And I said, I showed him the photographs of the images and I said, Lyndon, can you write me a poem that I can publish in the catalogue? And he said, no, I can't. And I said, why don't you, don't you want to? He said, no, no, because the poem has already been written. And I said, where's this poem? And he said, it's written by Edward Kamau Braithwaite in his uh, trilogy of poems called The Arrivals. Go and get the book and read it. And so I went to the Oxford University Press bookshop in Oxford Street and bought this book and sat on the train going back to Wiltshire reading it and it was as if a light went off in my head because the poems in this book and the images of my paintings seemed to correspond in every page that I turned. So I contacted Eddie Braithwaite in, in, in Jamaica and asked him if we could use at least extracts from his poems. We couldn't just republish his whole book of poetry in this, in this catalogue. So we used extracts and we got permission from him to do that. And that's how this body of work came together. And because I did it as a residency in, in the West Midlands, I offered the works to the galleries in the, in the West Midlands that they could uh, have it on long loan or if they wanted to purchase it, they can. And that is still where the majority of the paintings are. There's seven of them and they all come from galleries in the West Midlands. And every now and then they get shown uh, in the West Midlands and it's become an educational tool for the history of the slave trade and uh, its effect on the people who primarily in the West Midlands come from Jamaica. And I also, in the period of uh, doing this, I'd, I'd worked with um, a group of artists making the, uh, an exhibition called Art Contra Apartheid in Paris, in which 12 artists, we formed an organization. And one of the artists in that organization was Antonio Tapis. And one day I had opportunity, I said to Antonio, how do you make your paint? Because the, the paint that you use is not like nothing I've ever seen. And he said, Gavin, it's very simple. It's basically acrylic glue with pigment. 
So if you want to make cheap paint, this is the way to do it. It's a lot of work. You physically have to make it yourself. You have to actually grind the, the, the pigment into the glue. But it costs you one eighth of what it costs making commercial uh, acrylic. So I made my own paint and I took up these huge buckets of paint with me up to, up to Coventry and painted with that material to make the series. I'm curious about the solidarities you were able to forge while away from home, like this one with Antonio Tapies. But another major work of yours from the 80s is a mural called The Dream, The Rumor and The Poet's Song. You painted it in 1985 on a public wall in Brixton, uh, the Brixton neighborhood of London, with the artist Tam Joseph. The work itself no longer exists, but among the archival photographs we see in the show is a picture of you standing in front of it with a group of people. Could you tell us about these different solidarities and what the mural was all about? Yes, I, as I said, I came to live in um, in the UK after the so-called Brixton riots that uh, happened during Margaret Thatcher's uh, government. Uh, the GLC of the Greater London Council and the Labour Party leadership wanted to therefore create a better relationship with the Caribbean or the immigrant, so-called immigrant communities of England's inner cities. So the GLC, the London Greater London uh, Council, commissioned a series of murals uh, in various uh, communities of, of boroughs of London where there was a predominantly non-European community living there. Most of them were citizens of, of the UK. And I was asked to make, uh, make a proposal for, for Brixton. And I, I, I traveled around in the communities visiting um, bookshops, visiting uh, pubs, visiting uh, sports centers. And out of that came a mural, which is quite a gigantic piece of work. It's about 20, 27, 28 meters long and about five meters high on a wall in what was called Hoxton Square, which no longer exists because they have used Hoxton Square to develop a, a, a series of public buildings. Um, but I submitted this to the GLC and they um, asked me to paint this mural in Brixton. And I did that over one summer with my dear friend, Tam Joseph. And the two of us worked over the summer uh, making this work. And it was, it was an exceptional experience because every day people would come along, they'd sit on the benches opposite the wall and watch us work. And they would comment on it. And of course, when you're working that close, where you literally are two feet or a foot away from the wall. The wall becomes like, um, uh, what can you call it? It, it? it bounces off the sound. So if anybody was talking, sitting in the, we could actually hear them as if we were sitting right next to them. And they would discuss what they were looking at. And this was an interesting uh, kind of uh, inspiration for both Tam and myself, uh, listening to these old ladies talking about seeing themselves depicted in this in the narrative of this mural because it read like a book from from left to right it basically dealt with what is called the Windrush generation and it's now being celebrated the Windrush generation uh, their arrival their contribution then the the racial uh discrimination they suffered the uprising against that right and ends up with my friend Lyndon Quasi Johnson as the poet uh, reading to a group of young people uh, on the far right of this uh, sort of pictorial narrative. And um, 
We enjoyed it. We spent an, uh, an entire summer. I think it was something like two months. We spent three months maybe painting on it every day. Uh, great fun. And um, when it was completed, we invited all the all the communities we had spoken to over the year uh, to come to the opening. And we had a carnival band playing uh, on the square. And there was a big sort of weekend of uh, a festival uh, with lovely food and music and um, people just uh, coming to look at the look at the uh, look at the mural, including the the Brixton police. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Gavin. It's interesting to think about how public art leaves its mark on our collective memory, even after its tangible loss. Salah, this is such an expansive show, bringing together more than a hundred works and archival material from different geographies over the past 50 years. We can't go through all of it on the podcast, of course, but I want to ask you about the impact this work and of course Gavin's writing and curating has made on how art from Africa and the African diaspora is both seen and talked about. There are many ways to talk about how the show is framed, which, which is very important before we get into another subject. Let's start with the early work. There was there's a there's a one gallery dedicated to the figurative and old work that is let's say 70s 80s, in which there are the major series uh, that include the Corabora series, the Zulu series, and the Sky Chart series, among other work that uh, uh, figurative work that uh, Gavin did in the 70s and, and and early 80s. In the second gallery is the early work which is mostly the screen prints, that actually reflect his activism, Pan-African issues, the African-American struggle for civil rights and freedom, and then the focus on the South African, which is the coloring book that you talked about earlier. We tried also to include some archival material, but also recreating the mural itself and using some of the archival images, uh, especially the photographs that, uh, that Gavin just described, the last gallery is basically Gavin's shift to non-figurative painting, which is represented by multiple series, including uh, the Witness series, and then ending with the, uh, the, the, the Sharjah series, which he uh, executed during a residency in last, uh, last year, in early February and March. The impact of this show comes from two perspectives. One, his art and the journey of his art from the figurative to the activist type of art, into what he called it, being free, allowing the audience to speak directly to it. These are the generation of artists that actually manage to create an art that does not speak to any expectations. In fact, enter into demystifying, deconstructing those expectations and move ahead to, to create his own niche. He actually worked as a curator so there was a lot of link between his curatorial choices, which, which contributed, and he deliberately did the idea of that he's not supposed to be just doing African art. He also curated, uh, you know, artists from all kinds of others, but focused mostly on artists of color. That in itself, a contribution to changing the image of the artist or the African curator, that they were supposed to do a certain niche and, and that they should not explore others. So moving beyond what the ethnic expectation of the artist or the race or the class 
It is also important to learn from this that these artists are also cosmopolitan, internationalists, and they existed in the same space. Even though they didn't travel, sometimes some of them stayed within the continent, but they traveled through ideas, through reading, through exposure of images, even through books. So one, he is an example of an artist that actually breaks through, broke through and managed to position themselves as part of the global modern and and then the last idea that that actually I struggled for for a long time because how do you really look at African art and especially the contemporary and the modern? As an art historian, I felt this is an example of an artist or cosmopolitan. For me, Gavin is an embodiment of those type of artists that made it possible to think about African art as existing in the same space, different but equal in dialogue with others, but it has its own character. So that, that allows us to actually think about uh, a modernism uh, or contemporaneity as a whole as an, a, a, you know, an interconnected idea uh, and a dialogic idea in which all can, can contribute. And, and there was a, a very uh, famous saying, a quotation by Stuart Hall in thinking about the modern. He said that there is when you really think about even with an inequality in the world, that the, there is no longer something called the periphery and the center or the metropole and the colony, because he said the strongest art today is art of artists who are actually in and out of the center, not those who live in the, in the center itself. So the art of Gavinandis embodied us. Thank you for putting Gavin's long and multidimensional career into context for us, Salah. It's important to understand the long arc of artistic practices and their transformations alongside changes in the world. And on that note, Gavin, we want to ask you about the move you made from figuration and narrative towards abstraction. At a time when you returned to your studio after almost two decades, what inspired this shift and what was your experience of making some of these large scale paintings here in Sharjah like? That's a, that's a question that's coming at me more often than, uh, than any other. Having the residency in Sharjah was a unique opportunity for me because it provided me with a, a chance to make uh, or to work on a scale that I have never worked before. Uh, certainly in the studio situation, I've done the Brixton mural, which was a very large work, um, but... Um, making a non-figurative painting that is over six meters long. Uh, in fact, two, two very large paintings, which I executed in, in my residency time. It was also a wonderful opportunity to get to know Sharjah, to get to know the people, the city, uh, and to find out so much of its, what it offers. Um, on the, on the few days that I had off, I would often just walk around the city and discover wonderful things. So that was a really good experience. There really are three reasons for the shift uh, to non-figuration. The first one is I wanted to go into an art gallery and look again. Uh, I did not want to read in the gallery. That was the first one. The second one, I wanted to liberate my practice from the assumption and expectations that Western Eurocentric reading was placing on the work of artists coming from the so-called third world, and of course also and even an Afrocentric reading. And by doing those two things, the first and the second thing I've just mentioned, I thought that I could arrive at a more democratic interpretation and presentation 
of contemporary painting. So it's about creating a discourse around this medium called painting. And I've actually written some notes. I'm, I'm reading some, some of the notes that I wrote. The freedom of expression and the freedom of choice for me sits at the heart of all art making, irrespective of what art you're working in. As I said at the beginning, it was what my community taught me to use as a tool to get out of and resolve political problems. And yet there is a discourse that surrounds the work. There's a certain segregation that is put into place. And segregation, as we know, limits the experience of your work. It limits its achievement. And in so doing, it entraps even artists and viewers into particular modes of creativity and particular modes of thinking. And one has to ask, of course, why this discourse about art from the so-called non-Western world remained focused on race, class, sexual and cultural identities and political history. So I want to be free or I want my artwork to be free from segregation, whether it's the segregation imposed by a racist legislation such as apartheid or the segregation imposed by postmodern discourses in recent art history. I no longer want to instruct, I no longer want to impose on any viewer how they should read or interpret or understand my paintings. They are free to do so and do as they please and hopefully they will do it with an open mind. And that's really the discourse that I want to instill by making the shift to a non-figuration. You have to start talking about the art and its quality rather than the qualities of its maker. Gavin and Salah, thank you so much for joining us on Speaking of Art and talking about your life and work, as well as the ideas that you've been exploring and that have been important to you over the years. Gavin Yantis' retrospective, To Be Free, curated by Salah Hassan, is on view at El Mareja Square till the 10th of March. We look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing everybody there too.